Welcome to Glendale Christian Church. My name is Andrew Kirshner. I'm the lead minister here at GCC, and I'm grateful that you've decided to worship with us. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Today we continue our series out of the book of 1 Timothy, and in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, which we covered last week, Paul urged that prayers be made for all people. And noting that when we pray for all people, this pleases God. Now, God wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, and this is the truth. There is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom to save all people. This is the truth that God wants all people to embrace, for we know full well that when we believe in our heart that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and that he was raised from the dead, that is when we are justified. And after explaining this gospel, and after declaring that he was an apostle, a herald, and a true teacher, Paul now turns to conduct within the house of God, the church. The Holy Spirit speaks through the apostle Paul so that people will know how to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God. In light of the of call to prayer, and in light of the gospel, and in light of his credentials as apostle by the command of God, we now turn to our text, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. Let's read verses 8, 9, and 10 right now. Therefore, I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. And I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. The prayers issued on behalf of all people are to be made with propriety. Propriety is the state of being proper or of doing something properly. It is improper to evoke a correct posture of prayer, but then to issue those prayers in anger or with dispute. It was not uncommon at all, however, for certain hot-headed men in first century Ephesus to be angry when they prayed or to dispute when they prayed, especially when they were praying for kings and all those in authority. It sometimes got the better of them. And so the Apostle Paul's spirit-breathed admonition against men praying in anger or with dispute applies to men everywhere, not just in Ephesus. This epistle is not just for one church located at a certain time and place. Remember that the epistle was written so that people would know how to conduct themselves in the household of God, which is the church of God. And verse 8 says, I want men everywhere to pray without anger or disputing. This applies just as much to us today as it did to Timothy's congregation. The men are charged to pray with all propriety. Now, the women, they didn't have a problem so much praying in anger, but they were not without issue. There was a tendency for women to dress immodestly. But lest we import our 21st century understanding of immodesty and think that there were a bunch of ladies in first century Ephesus that were scantily clad, we must understand that the problem of immodesty and impropriety had to do with 
elaborate hairstyles, expensive clothes, and accessories that highlighted certain women's tremendous wealth. While men had anger issues, women felt the pull to one-up each other in their status. They wanted to tout their wealth and their status. And so, the apostles' spirit-breathed encouragement of modesty, decency, and propriety for women to adorn themselves with good deeds is not just for women in first century Ephesus. Women everywhere should adorn themselves with good deeds appropriate for those who profess to worship God. And this applies just as much to our congregation as it did to Timothy's. The principles of propriety, of modesty, and of decency are universal. What changes is the application. If we can pray with propriety, our hands can be lifted up when we pray, or they can be folded in our laps when we pray. If we're praying with propriety, our eyes can be wide open, or our little heads can be bowed and our eyes closed. As long as propriety is the thing, then not anger, and not dispute, then the posture of our prayer is secondary to the posture of our heart. And so it is with dress. You can come to church wearing your Sunday best as long as your motive is not to immodestly one-up someone else with expensive or elaborate clothes designed to highlight your wealth or your body. And so as long as you are not trying to rub it in other people's faces that you're so much richer than them or to get people to look at your body rather than to look to God Almighty, it doesn't matter if you wear your Sunday best or if you come straight from the farm. I don't care and neither does God because it's an issue of heart propriety, not an issue of the specificity. This is the truth. Let us be a congregation that takes propriety in worship, whether arms lifted or not, whether our Sunday best or t-shirts, seriously. Having addressed propriety in worship, the apostle now turns to the topic of authority and leadership within God's household. And while our text today ends at the uh, tail end of chapter 2, verse 15, the apostles' teaching on authority and propriety in the house of God continue well into chapter 3 and beyond. But now, let us look at chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through the childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Again, propriety is the central concern. What is proper concerning authority and leadership within God's household? Much ink has been spilled on these few verses, and much concern has been raised about them. And sadly, the Apostle Paul is sometimes maligned as a misogynist because of these verses. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Paul valued female contribution to the gospel. Women contributed generously, and they served regularly with the Apostle. What women can do is not the topic at hand. The topic at hand is authority 
and leadership within God's household. And within God's household, human authority and leadership belongs to men. Women are to learn. Women are to pray. Women are to prophesy. Women are to evangelize, to share their testimony, to teach other women, to teach children, to help and support their husbands if married, and along with the other men, to submit to the ordained human authoritative leaders of the congregation. In this spirit-breathed text, the apostle explains that women are not to be authoritative human leaders within the church of the living God or teachers of men. This text also explains why. Immediately following this passage in chapter 3 are listed the qualifications for those who are to be the human leaders within the church. The elders who will oversee the congregation who will teach the congregation, and who will protect the congregation from false doctrine and from other spiritual threats. To rightly understand the divinely orchestrated order within the church, the apostle appeals to creation and to the fall by invoking Adam and Eve in order to demonstrate an important concept, the concept of headship. Headship is the order of authority which facilitates efficiency among a team of equals. Imagine a team of equals, yet without a leader. Without order among equals, chaotic inefficiency would reign. Anytime there's a team of equals, headship is necessary to produce efficient and effective results. Now I recognize this is a hard passage. But our commitment to believing God's word and to preaching through God's word requires wrestling and addressing those texts that even seem difficult to us. We as a church are committed to God's word and we will stand upon its truth. We will allow it to inform our beliefs. We will allow it to inform our behaviors. And we are committed to the exegetical preaching of God's word. And the leadership here at Glendale Christian Church has prayerfully and carefully studied these matters. The elders of our congregation have demonstrated spiritual leadership and commitment to protect the flock. And I am so proud to be under their authority and under their protection. The elders and pastoral staff of GCC have investigated this topic thoroughly. And allow me, if I can, just to peel the veil back just a little bit so you can see uh, into a glimpse of how the elders are operating about all of this, how they challenge me to rightly handle the Word of God by themselves demonstrating an appropriate handle of the Word of God. Before this sermon, there were two special meetings of all the elders that were only focused on doctrine. No church business, No finances, no attendance numbers, nothing like this. The only matter that was discussed was doctrine. And for hours, we were able to talk and discuss and think and pray about doctrine. And this happened on multiple occasions. The elders of this congregation, because of these meetings and because of prayer and because of thoughtful and careful study, have unanimous and total commitment to the principle of headship. Headship is the order and authority which facilitates efficiency among a team of equals, which is true of God himself and of all teams of equals that God ordains. And that is why headship is the pillar and foundation of order in the Trinity, the family, 
and the church. The Trinity, God himself, the one being who is God, composed of three divine persons who are all morally perfect, eternal, and omnipotent, form a team. A family, a godly husband and a godly wife are equals and yet form a team. And the church, a collection of equals, form a team. The only way for efficiency to reign is for headship to be here. Consider the Trinity for just a moment. Imagine the perfect Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. All morally perfect and all omnipotent, but they have a disagreement. Let's suppose it's a disagreement about something that doesn't really matter, like which way should Saturn's rings spin, clockwise or counterclockwise. Now, this doesn't really matter too much, but the Father really wants it to be clockwise, but the Son really wants it to be counterclockwise. Imagine two omnipotent beings. They are all powerful. One cannot exert his power over the other. So how is anything going to get done? Well, we, you can see how there would be all kinds of inefficiency unless there was headship. And there is. Consider the Trinity. Now, when it comes to the Trinity, there's a lot of different things going on. But one thing that we read in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, is that the head of Christ is God the Father. But what we read in John chapter 5, verses 36 and 37 are these words. The works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I'm doing, testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has testified concerning me. Yes, there's headship in the Trinity. The Father is the head of Christ, and in fact, Christ even says, the Father sends me. The Father sends the Son. That's the order. The Father is the one who sends the Son. And in fact, the Father also sends the Spirit. In John 14, 26, Jesus himself says, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said. The Father sends the Son. The Father sends the Spirit, but the Son also sends the Spirit along with the Father. Listen to John 15, 26. Jesus says, When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father and from me will testify about me. So you can see the headship going on. It looks kind of like this in pictorial form. God the Father has headship over God the Son, and God the Father sends God the Son and God the Spirit. But both God the Father and God the Son send God the Spirit. And yet, the Spirit is no less valuable or divine or powerful as Jesus. And Jesus is no less eternal or powerful or divine as the Father. In fact, my goal in life is to do the will of the Father. My goal in life is to be compelled by Christ to do the works of Christ. My goal in life is to keep in step with the Spirit as He leads me. We as a church want to be Father-willed, Christ-compelled, and Spirit-led. There's no diminution of Christ or the Spirit. The Trinity is a team of equals. And yet, they perfectly understand headship being the pillar and foundation of divine order. But... It's not just the Trinity that understands divine order. The Bible makes clear that headship doesn't just exist within the triune God himself, but also within the family. Just as the Trinity is a collection of three co-equally divine persons who are the one God, so a man and a woman who are equally made in the image of God and are equally saved by grace come together in marriage to become one flesh. 
And yet, just as within the Trinity, headship is necessary for the order of authority to facilitate efficiency among that team of equals, so too, God has placed headship within the family to facilitate and function authority and efficiency among this team of equals. Consider some scriptures that talk about headship in the family. 1 Corinthians 11.3 says, But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God the Father. The apostle says in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 25, Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit to their husbands in respect. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. God's word lays out headship clearly for the family. Man is the head of woman. Husband is the head of the wife. Order is a beautiful thing. Two equals exercising different roles. And these roles complement each other. The husband is to lead his family and to love his wife sacrificially. The wife is to help and to respect her husband. There's no domineering here. There's no illicit diminution of femininity. But there is Christ-likeness here. We see that there is Christ-likeness in this submission and there is Christ-likeness in this loving leadership. A woman of God is to marry a man of God and together are to raise godly children. This does not diminish femininity any more operating under the headship of masculinity than Christ is diminished by operating under the headship of God the Father. No, it's a beautiful order that facilitates efficiency. But the world does think it diminishes a woman merely to be a wife and a mom who stays at home with the children. But the world's going to lie to us. The world is going to tell us that a woman doesn't need a man and that a woman should definitely pursue a career outside the home or else she's repressed. But this is not so. This is not so. God created men and women equally and yet with different roles that complement one another. The husband is the head, the leader, the protector. The wife is the helper, the keeper, the nurturer. While a wife and a mom certainly can go have a career, it is not right to diminish those who stay at home and choose to value and prioritize what God has given them. Some moms have to work. Some moms get to work. All moms need to raise their children. And so it's not right to diminish those who choose to stay home. In fact, God has gifted women with an opportunity to find security, protection, and leadership in her husband and to find joy, satisfaction, and contentment in helping to guide and train her children. And I know a little something about this because I'm married to an excellent woman who has two Bible college degrees who has served as a children's minister of a thriving elementary ministry. I've uh, I've served alongside a woman who can do all kinds of things. My wife is that way. But my wife is also an amazing mother. And she chose to stay home with our children until it was time for her to go pursue the ministry at the church. And then when we came here, the decision became clear. She was going to stay home, and she chose to stay home and homeschool our children. And I don't want anyone to diminish my wife for her choices. She's doing the most spiritually significant thing that she can do. 
helping to guide and train her children. And so anyone who would disparage my wife or anyone like her for embracing her divinely assigned roles, well, then you and I can go have a conversation after church. I'd love that. We can definitely talk outside afterwards. Headship is the pillar and foundation of divine order in the Trinity and in the family. But headship is also the divine order within the church. Let's look to our text again this morning, verses 11 and 12. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. When 1 Timothy 12, 2.12 says that a woman is not permitted to teach or have authority over men, it is because this would go against the flow of headship. The context of propriety in the conduct of the house of God is what we're talking about. Chapter 3, verse 15 says that the whole letter is so that people will know how they ought to conduct themselves in the household of God, which is the church of God. And the beginning of chapter 2 explains that this applies to people everywhere. This is for everyone. The church is a team of equals. We are all Christians. But every team needs leadership. Christ is the head of the universal church, but there also needs to be local leadership in particular congregations. And the one called to be a local overseer, pastor, or elder of the church congregation, as described in 1 Timothy chapter 3, those who have authority and those who teach the congregation of men are to be men. Now, this in no way diminishes women, nor does it elevate men above women. It's a differentiation of roles, not a value. Very few men among the congregation are called to serve as elders, but those who do serve as overseers, as pastors, as keepers of sound doctrine, teachers of the whole congregation, and they are the human authorities of God's household. They are the human heads of the church. And this makes sense, of course, because headship is the pillar and foundation of divine order in the Trinity, in the family, and in the church. Headship is necessary for efficiency among a team of equals. But even so, this gives some pause. Even so, some people bristle at the apostle's word, finding them sexist or outdated, and some have a tendency to bristle at headship in general, both because people do not like to submit and because sacrificial loving leadership is hard. And yet, we are called to operate within the divine order of headship at home and in the church. This is good. God's word is good. God's church is good and holy. To be holy is to be set apart. And we are not to do things the way the world does. The world does things one way. We need to do things God's way. The world might tell us, Oh, the Bible and God really need to get with the times. After all, women today can be presidents of colleges, presidents of companies, presidents of countries. Women are capable, educated, skilled, and gifted. This is true. And in the world, women hold various authorities of position all the time. But we're not talking about the world. We're talking about God's design for Christian families, God's design for the church and the divine order therein. The church which he bought with his own blood. And so God, speaking through the Apostle Paul, does not need to get with the times because the stated reason for divine order of headship is not culturally based. 
The reason that divine order of headship within the church is not based on circumstances in the first century Ephesus. It is based on universal truths that are equally applicable to all people. And that's exactly what the text provides. Let's look again at verses 13 through 15. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through the childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. The accounts of creation and of the fall help us to understand propriety within the church. There is both an equality of value and a difference in roles for men and women. And that's what we have to understand. Men and women are of equal value, and yet they have different roles. Think about the equal value of men and women as it goes back all the way to creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And after creating all the stuff, the very last thing that God created was humankind. And in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 7, God says, let us make mankind in our image. And verse 27 says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. And so we see that they are equally created in the image of God, and yet despite that equality, there's a difference in role. Some were created men and some were created women, yet both were created in the image of God. So there's an equality of value, but a difference in role that takes place. And in fact, Genesis 1:28, the very next verse, says that God blessed them and told them to be fruitful to increase in number, to fill the earth and subdue it, to rule over it, to rule over all of the creatures. Genesis 2 then gives more of a detailed explanation of the creation of Adam and Eve. It gives us more of a detailed picture, and Genesis 2-7 explains how Adam was created. God took the dust of the earth, and he formed it into a man, and then he breathed life into him, and he became a living being. And God says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, that the Lord took the man and put him in the garden and gave him a specific role. He said, take care of the garden, tend to it, and you can eat from any tree you want except that one in the middle, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat that, you're certainly going to die. And so Adam had a job to do, and Adam had freedom. But verse 18 is very important. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And then in verse 19, God tells Adam, look at all the animals and name them, and he does. But then verse 20 says, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. And so God caused Adam to go into a deep sleep, and he took a part of the side of the man, and he created woman from that side after closing up the side of the man, and he made a helper for Adam and brought Eve to him. And to them together, God said, here is your job. Procreate and rule together, equally. Procreate and rule over everything. Have dominion over it all. And yet, despite this equality of value, Eve had a particular role. She was designed to be Adam's helper. And it was great. Oh, it was great. It was so good. They had so much fun. Everything was awesome. Until that sneaky serpent. In chapter 3, rolled in. And his lie, and his temptation, and his usurpation of headship. He whispered to Eve, did God really say you can't eat any fruit from any tree? No, that's part of the lie. 
And Eve said, well, we can eat, just not from that one, because then we'll die. You won't die, says the serpent. God just doesn't want you to be like him. And then it says, Eve saw that the fruit was pleasing to the eye, useful for food, and would make her like God. And so she took some, ate it, became a sinner, and gave some to her husband, and he ate as well. Standing right next to her, doing nothing, failing at his job to protect her, they sinned. And God came down, and God came down hard. And you know what he did? He blamed the man. Even though Eve took first, he blamed the man. And throughout all the Bible and into the New Testament, Adam is the one who takes the heat, even though Eve is the one who took the treat. That's how it started. And yet it doesn't stay that way. So God starts doling out curses. He starts doling out a punishment. And he says to the serpent, oh, not going to be good for you. And in Genesis 3.15, we've got the very first prophecy in the whole Bible. He says, I'm going to put enmity, God does. I'm going to put enmity between you and the offspring of the woman. And you are going to strike his heel, but he is going to crush your head. And then he says to the woman, on verse 16, he says, I will make your pains in childbirth very severe. And with painful labor, you'll give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And so there was pain in relationships. It was tough. It's always been tough to be a woman. I don't know from experience, but I can see from observation. And reading about history, I can see that it has probably always been difficult to be a woman. Imagine the pain in relationship to children and the pain in relationship to husbands. In pain in relationship to childbirth, not only will their pain increase, but the regularity of the painfulness will increase. Women will now be able to get pregnant every year. Every woman who's fertile could have a baby every year. Every year you could go through this pain. And what happens after you give birth to these little sinners that you love so much and that you give so much to and care so much for? They kill their brothers. They do other things and they wreck everything and then they leave. Then they leave. They go find their own wives or their own husbands and they leave. And the pain has got to be hard. And the pain is also hard for the relationship between a woman and her husband. She'll have the desire for him, but he will rule over her. Have you noticed that in the rest of the world or in other places in the world, women don't have the same rights as men? And in the history, women didn't have the same rights as men. Men were seen as in charge and women were seen more as property. It's been tough to be a woman. And the reason is from this curse. The men will rule over. But to the man, there was a curse given also. And God said, by the sweat of your brow, you will work hard to eat. No more easy picking the low-hanging fruit from the trees that I make. Now you will go work hard at the ground, and it will be by the sweat of your own brow that you eat, and then you will die and return to the ground from the ground is where you came. And so we find out that the equality was also seen in the curse because of sin, but there was a difference of curse. They were both cursed, but there was a difference of curse. And yet God's love for his creation is too strong for them to be separated. Having been cursed, God separated them and kicked them out of the garden. But God's love and God's gospel would eventually reverse the curse. He promised to do so in the curse. Genesis 3.15 is the very first prophecy in all the Bible. And the woman would have an offspring and enmity would be between that offspring and the serpent and they would clash. 
So first, God established a sacrificial system by which humans could make up for their sin by sacrificing a blemishless animal. But it didn't work because no animal was made in the image of God and no animal was good enough. The only sacrifice that could perfectly cover a human being was another human being. But all the humans are sinful and in need of sacrifice. And even if there was a human who was not in need of sacrifice, he could only die to cover one other human. The only way for God to save the day was for the gospel and the childbearing. Just as verse 15 says, but women will be saved through the childbearing if you persist in faith, love, and propriety, we see that the childbearing is what saved the day. For God the Father sent God the Son on a very important mission, and God the Spirit miraculously created a body inside of a young virgin named Mary. And God told Joseph and Mary not to get divorced, but to stay together, to marry and to name this baby Jesus because he would save the people from their sin. John tells us that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. It is through the childbearing. The same curse that God issued to the woman is exactly how every human being gets saved. Jesus comes to earth through the incarnation. It is through the childbearing that Jesus comes to save us all. And women are equally saved as men. This is no male-only kind of stuff. It is, in fact, the gospel that reverses the curse. This young baby, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, grew up never having sinned, living a perfect and sinless life. He died on the cross so that you and I would not have to die on the cross. He took our penalty, and God raised him from the dead, proving that the sacrifice worked. And if we believe in our heart that God raised Jesus from the dead after dying on the cross for our sins, then we will be justified filled with the Holy Spirit on our way towards Christ-likeness. This is the gospel, and it reverses the curse. It denies the power of Satan. It removes the sting of death. Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Now we have eternal life, and now we have the hope of reunion for all those who have gone before us in Christ. And it even removes the pain of relationship. For the woman will be ruled over by her husband, and even though the New Testament does use that language, the husband will rule over the woman, yet there is not a diminution. For wherever Christ goes, women are elevated. And now husbands are to love their wives sacrificially, as Christ loved the church. No more domineering. Now it's sacrificing. Because of equality. Because of equality of salvation. Equality of being made in the image of God. And in fact, even the relationship of pain between a mother and her children will be reversed. For the greatest joy that a parent can ever have is when a child becomes a brother or sister in Christ. And not merely a child. And we have the opportunity to train and to raise our children so that they will no longer just be our daughters or sons. They will be our sisters and brothers. They may leave, but they will never leave. Do you see how the curse reverses everything? The curse takes care of it all. And so in Christ, all who believe are children of God. There's an equality of value. In fact, Galatians 3.26 says, So in Christ, all are children of God. But it continues in 27. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. And then verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. There's an equality of value, and yet there is still a differentiation of roles. In fact, 1 Corinthians 12, 4 says there's different kinds of gifts, but it's the same Spirit who distributes them all. 
And because of our gifts, we have different roles. Not everybody is to do the same exact thing in church. We use our God-given roles in ways that fit within the order of headship so we can efficiently do what we were called to do and make disciples. That's why we do what we do. There's an equality. And that equality extends to our being co-heirs. Romans 8, 17 says, Now if you are a child of God, then you are an heir. And an heir of God, a co-heir with Christ. Men and women are equally co-heirs with Christ. And yet, they operate under male headship. And we know that we already read 1 Corinthians eleven three 3 and Ephesians 5, 23. Under male headship, all people equally get to do certain things. Under male headship in the church, all people, men and women, get to learn, get to pray, get to prophesy, get to evangelize, get to serve, get to do all kinds of stuff within the church. But eldership is reserved for men. Those who will protect the flock, those who will teach the whole congregation, those who will oversee the affairs of the church, they are to be men. They are to be men. And this is what Scripture tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and in Titus chapter 1. And you may not like it, but that's what it says in the Word of God. And that's how we will operate in the household of God. Because headship is the pillar and foundation for divine order within the Trinity, within the family, and within the church. So how can we grow in our knowledge of God's stuff? How can we grow in our comfortability about talking about God's stuff? Well, you could sign up for conversational discipleship. It's where groups of three men and three women are going to get together. They're going to be intergenerational. We're going to put an older fella with some younger fellas and an older lady with some younger ladies, and we're going to cross service. So if you don't know people in first service, I'll try to find one for you. And you're going to meet once a week for seven weeks. That's it, low commitment. But let me tell you this. If you already go to church, already go to Sunday school, already go to Wednesday, already have a small group, you don't necessarily have to do this. Additionally, it's a fun opportunity, but this is no litmus test of your value in Christ. It is an opportunity to grow in your ability to converse about Christ, and that's what we're going to do. We're going to meet to converse and talk about God stuff. We're going to pray. I'll provide weekly topics, and you can sign up at the Hub using a slip of paper. You can sign up using the Church Center app on your phone. Now, here's what I want you specifically to do this week. I want you to read 1 Timothy verses two and three, or chapters 2 and 3 every day. Every day, I want you to read the flow of the argument from chapter 2 all the way into chapter 3 so you can see this headship at play. Read chapter 2 and 3 every day. And then I want you to pray for propriety. Pray for propriety in your life and in your worship. And I want you to contemplate headship in the Trinity. I want you to understand, oh yeah, the Father is the head of Christ. The Father and the Son are heads over the Spirit. And I want you to understand that this in no way diminishes the Spirit or the Son. I want you to think about headship at home. And I want you to think about, men, if it's time to step up your leadership game and start loving more sacrificially. Start learning more about God so that you can be a better spiritual leader for your wife and for your children. We can do it together, but you are the one that's called to have the mantle of headship. Step up. It's hard, I know. When I got married to Kim, she knew more about the Bible than I did, but I have grown. And I will lead my household. And I want you to contemplate this in the church also. I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to work on you and to see if you need to better submit to God's way or if you need to better figure out how to be efficient in your service. And lastly, I want you to share the gospel. But this week, I want you to share it specifically in this way, how the gospel reverses the curse. I want you to talk about the curse given to woman, the curse given to man, and I want you to talk about how the gospel reverses that curse. Because if you can share the gospel in all these different ways, you're going to be a powerful disciple maker. Let's stand and let's pray.